Lord, thank you for sending us a Savior who did not pull any punches, who was willing to clearly say it like it is, Lord. Lord, who told us that there are those who bear fruit and that there are those who do not bear fruit. And that, Lord, he has given us the challenge to ask the question, do we hear and do we bear fruit? Lord, I pray that this text today would challenge us and encourage us. That, Father, it would lead people who perhaps have felt safe when they shouldn't feel safe to repent and trust in Christ for the first time. And that, Lord, this would help those, Father, who have walked with Christ to know their blessed estate as those who are part of the family of God, who live lives of ever-growing fruitfulness and to the day, Father, we see you and the harvest is marked by everlasting joy. We ask that you would help us to discern your word and to understand the words of our Savior. And we pray this in his name. Amen. It seems that it has been ages since we were in our series through the Gospel of Matthew. And I am eager to get back at it today, particularly as we begin a new section. If you recall, as I've stated uh, several times throughout this journey through this Gospel, that the Gospel of Matthew... It is a book that is arranged around five sermons or five discourses that are each preceded by narrative passages. So there's stories, and then there's a sermon. Stories, and then a sermon again and again. For instance, in chapters 3 and 4, we saw narrative sections which culminated in the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. We saw stories, and then we had a sermon in chapters 8 and 9, they contained more narrative stories which related Christ's great authority. And those culminated in Jesus' second sermon in chapter 10, where he sent out his disciples authoritatively for good ministry. And most recently, we've considered the narratives of chapters 11 and 12, where opposition against Jesus begins to emerge from both the Jewish leadership as well as the people at large in the land. And so now, having looked at those stories, we begin chapter 13. Jesus provides yet another discourse, a third discourse, and this one marked by parables, including the parable of the sower, our text today, the parable of the weeds, the parable of the hidden treasure, and others. And now, before, before we begin to, to take up this chapter 13, I want to take a quick look at what's been happening in the stories leading up to it, especially since it's been over a month since we've been in this gospel. Well, in chapter 12, if you'll look back just briefly in verses 33 through 35, Jesus, if you recall, he rebukes the hearts of the people of Israel, particularly their leaders. He says in verse 33 of chapter 12, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings 
forth evil. So Jesus rebukes the hearts of the people of Israel, particularly their leaders in chapter 12. Opposition is beginning to rise against Jesus. And as it does, Jesus says, the problem with you is your hearts. You've got an internal condition. And then, at the end of the chapter, chapter 12, the last text we looked at, in verses uh, 49 through 50, Jesus reveals who his true spiritual family are, and they're not who you might think. It's not anyone and everyone in the land of Israel. It's not even his literal mother and brothers, but it is the spiritual family of God. He says in verses 49 and 50 of chapter 12, And stretching out his hands toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is his true spiritual family. Christ's spiritual family is made up of those who, he says, do the will of the Father in heaven. So Jesus, throughout those two chapters, 11 and 12, he has staked the claim, you've got a heart problem, and if you're with me, if you're with me, it means that you're a doer of the word of God. It means that you do the will of the Father in heaven. So he makes a big claim here. If you're really with me, if your heart is right, then you're going to do the will of God. You're going to follow me on this path. And if not, you're those whose hearts are marked by those who are a brood of vipers. And in verse 50, as he says, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, that verse, I think is a driving force. That verse acts as a, as a driving force, as a catalyst, right into chapter 13, our text. For Matthew connects them together with a rhetorical device. If you'll note the very beginning of chapter 13, he says, that same day. Now Matthew in his gospel, I haven't talked about this a whole lot, but he's pretty loose in terms of when narratives happened. You'll read different gospel writers, and you'll say, well, this event happened after this event, but in this gospel, the event happened before. And that's because the gospel writers will take narratives of Jesus, and their point is not to give you a chronological list of everything Jesus did, but to convey a message. And in conveying messages, they'll, re they'll, they'll relate different stories at different times. So Matthew, sometimes he'll be all over the place in terms of what stories he's including when, but here he uses a rhetorical device to connect chapter 13 right with what he's been saying in chapter 12. He says that same day. So this isn't a different occasion. This is that same day as he told them that whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. That same day he began to preach this parable of the sower. Now I want you to keep that in mind. The parables in chapter 13 are building off of the rising opposition that is occurring in chapters 11 and 12. So you can't take chapter 13 and read it as if it's a standalone. You have to understand it in its context. It's a sermon that flows right out of chapters 11 and 12. The people of Israel are beginning to assault Jesus with their attitudes, actions, and words. And Jesus responds in chapter 13 by preaching a sermon marked by parables. So this brings us to our context. As Jesus begins to relate, to, pre to preach by relating a parable with this agricultural imagery. He relates the parable of the sower or the farmer. Now the Lord, he loves illustrations from farm life. 
And as a rural kid, I think that's kind of cool. He loves illustrations from farm life. In fact, God, he uses them again and again and again in his communication to his people. For instance, in the book of Amos, chapter 9, verse 13, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. That's a metaphor. And the agricultural metaphor means that there is a great day of blessing coming to this world. The wine is going to flow, which means goodness, gladness is going to flow. That's what he says. Or in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 10, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. So God communicates through Isaiah that he has a seed, a seed that he's sowing that will result in fruitfulness. It won't return to him empty. Passages like that, those who love the gospel and share it with others, they turn to and they say, okay, I'm going to share the gospel, and I have confidence, confidence in sharing the gospel. Because God says that in the proclamation of his word, it does not return empty or void. And Christ Jesus, our great prophet, he uses again farm imagery here in Matthew 13 to communicate the important truth to the people of Israel and to his listening disciples, and even to us today. Now, I am no farmer. I'm no farmer, but I do know that farmers put in all of their labor, all of their labor, all, all of their toil, all of their struggle they put in for one singular purpose, for the fruitful harvest at the end of the season. Now, in the Midwest, farmers begin to plant corn and beans as soon as the ground will allow them to in the spring. They plant it, they tend it, they spray it, they pray over it, all for one goal, that when the fall comes around, they will have a bounty of corn and beans to harvest. Their one goal is fruitfulness. Well, Jesus uses this same imagery. His true family are those who do the will of the Father in heaven, or as chapter 13 explains to us, his true family. His true family are those who do the Father's will by bearing spiritual fruit. Now in this text, there are three transitions as Christ moves from that end of chapter 12 through this first parable, the parable of the sower. Three transitions. First transition is the parable itself. In verses 1 through 9. He, he states the parable. The second transition, he, he changes scenes. The second transition is the purpose behind the parable. In verses 10 through 17, where he relates to the disciples the purpose behind the parable. And then third, third transition, we see the explanation of the parable. He explains to the disciples what this parable means in verses 18 through 23. So three transitions. Those will mark our passage today. Transition number one, let us consider the parable itself. 
Notice with me again verses 1 through 9. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So the seed, it falls in four places, Jesus says. First of all, the path where the farmer would walk upon hardened, pressed down dirt to get from one section of the field to another. And because the ground was so firm due to the constant treading of people's feet, the seeds would not be able to sink in and they would end up as food for the birds, he says. Secondly, he speaks of the rocky ground where limestone bedrock was close to the surface of the earth, providing very little room for the seed to be planted down deep in the ground in order to sprout strong roots so that when the sun's rays would get hot upon the plant, the soil would also heat up, which would kill it because its root had not reached down to the cool soil beneath where it could drink and be replenished. Third, he mentions the seed that falls among the thorns, which choked the plant from getting the sun that it needed and prevented it from growing properly. Now, none of these first three places upon which the seed fell, if you'll notice, none of those first three places produced fruit. In fact, they were fruitless, and they brought the sower no benefit. The only thing left for such plants as any farmer will tell you, is destruction. You till it up. You destroy it. Or as Jesus says in John 15, verses 5 and 6, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he says, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, he says, and burned. Those who abide in Jesus, they're fruitful. God will prune them. They will feel his discipline. They will be cleaned, but they will be fruitful. But those who provide no fruitfulness, they will be gathered together, and they will be burned. And only the last place upon which the seed fell, according to Jesus, only the last place for the seed was fruitful, the good ground, which produced grain of various levels of fruitfulness. And all of this, Jesus tells us, as he told them, through a parable. Now, the parables of Jesus are tricky to explain. I'm going to take a crack at defining it, okay? The parables of Jesus are short stories. I'm going to make it really broad here. 
They are short stories which employ similes, proverbs, and metaphors to illustrate Christ's wisdom, particularly the wisdom about his kingdom. So when you see a parable in Scripture, when Jesus relates a parable, the parables of Jesus, they are short stories which employ similes, proverbs, and metaphors to illustrate his wisdom, particularly the wisdom about his kingdom. Now, over the years, some have approached the parables of Jesus, I think, by taking them too far. By insisting that every little part of the story must somehow be allegorized in order to find its particular meaning. Every little piece has to have a correlation, in other words. Or, some people take it too far by missing the intended message of the parables altogether by attempting to relate them to various issues in life. So they miss the spiritual message Jesus is trying to convey, and instead they say, oh, well, this is about how to have good relations when it comes to real estate. Or this is how to have good tips when you're a farmer. And so they take it and they apply it to life in ways that Jesus really never intended them to. But the parables of Jesus are meant to communicate a singular, important point within the context of the words themselves. You can't take chapter 13 and divorce it from chapters 11 and 12. They mean what they mean because they're right next to chapters 11 and 12. They flow right out of it. And remember that Jesus has just said in chapter 12, at the very end, verse 50, verse 50, that whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And I am arguing that when he says whoever does is correlated with this word fruit. That obedience to God is the fruitfulness of God that he is speaking of. The context for the parable of the sower here is Christ's expansion on this theme. This is not a lesson guide in how to approach farming. It is not a, it, it, instead, it, instead, it is a sermonic tool to relate the truth of what true followers of Jesus look like as fruit-bearing people, people who are obedient members of his family. So, I think we must listen very carefully to the vital message he presents here. In fact, he tells us to, because he says in verse 9, He who has ears, let him hear. My friends, if Jesus says, perk up and listen, we must perk up and listen. And this leads to our second transition today. Second transition, let us consider the reason for the parable. The reason for the parable. Look with me at verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, 
and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The disciples want to know why Jesus is speaking in this way. They don't understand what the parables mean themselves. As we're going to learn later on in this chapter, they needed further explanation. And they can't understand why Jesus doesn't simply speak to the people in prose. With simple, clear, indicative statements. Why all this metaphor, Jesus? Why the parables? And Jesus' answer is itself hard to understand, we must admit. For he relates that his parables are meant for two groups of people in verse 11. It's meant for those who have been given the ability by God to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven and those to whom it has not been given. So Christ has two audiences in mind as he relates this sermon, as he speaks to the people. People who have been given knowledge into the secret of God's kingdom and those people who have not. Now there are some who have been blessed with this knowledge and there are some, he says who have not been blessed with this knowledge. The blessed have not only been given insight into God's remarkable salvation and his spiritual reign in his people's hearts, but as verse 12 here says, even more will be given to them. As Paul says, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even more will be given to them so that these people will have an abundance. And if you know Christ... You know that when you first come to Christ and receive the gospel and comprehend it, it's just the beginning of the joys that God flows to you through that message. That he continues to increase knowledge and wisdom about him, and as he does so, there's an abundance of joy that comes with it. But to the one who does not have, he or she will miss out. Now, we have spoken on this topic already in the gospel of Matthew, so I'm not going to belabor it. If you recall, back in Matthew chapter 11, we got into quite a discussion about the sovereignty of God in that text, and we've talked about it before, so I'm not going to camp out there too much today. But you might ask, you might ask in reading verses 10 through 17, is there injustice with God? To give his knowledge and blessing to some, but not give it to others, is there injustice with God? And I think I'll just briefly say what Paul said when he was asked that very question in Romans chapter 9. When he says in verse 14 and 15, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. My friends, the issue here is not injustice. The justice that every single one of us deserves, the justice that every single human being who has ever lived, save Jesus Christ, deserves, is the justice of God's judgment. Every one of us, the only thing we deserve from God is his justice. 
And it is not for us to argue back to him when he says, I am going to show my compassion, my mercy, my, my grace upon some whom I'm going to elect to myself. It is not for us to question him. It is for us to simply say, if we have Jesus Christ, praise God, he saved me. And there will not be a single soul in eternity who says, well, I wanted to be saved by God. I asked God to save me, but he wouldn't do it. No, all who repent and put faith in Jesus will be saved. So, is there injustice with God? As Paul says, meganeto. May it never be. For God will have compassion on whom he has compassion. Now, Jesus goes on to further relate his reasoning here for speaking in parables. First of all, he relates that his dull listeners are actually the only ones here who are deserving of blame. He says in verse 13, that seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In other words, he's, they've been given eyes, they've been given ears, but they won't see, they won't listen. Their hearts are inclined towards sin, they will not listen. Truth is right before them, and they do not see it. The word is speaking to them incarnate, and they will not listen. Jesus himself is teaching, but they will not accept his message. Their hearts are not inclined toward God, and their hearts do not receive the message of Jesus. They have become dull of hearing. But then Jesus goes on to connect the prophecy again in Isaiah. This time Isaiah chapter 6 verses 9 through 10. He connects this prophecy in Isaiah 6 with his, with his words in this very sermon. Listen to what Isaiah was told. Right after, right after in Isaiah 6, you know that famous, that famous scene where, where Isaiah is brought into the throne room of God and he beholds the angels and he sees God in his majesty and he falls down and he says, I am a man who is undone. I am unraveling here. At the sight of God's holiness, and an angel comes and touches a firebrand to his tongue. Isaiah, he, he sees God in a, in, a, in a semblance of his holiness. And then God, he, he sends Isaiah after this to go and preach to the people of Israel. And Isaiah responds with those famous words, Here am I, Lord, send me. And the Lord commands him, saying these words. Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Can you imagine being in Isaiah's shoes? He's told, hey, I'm going to send you to the people. You're going to preach my word, and they're going to turn against it. They're going to turn against you. Well, that's quite a commission to ministry. Go to this church, and they're going to kick you out on year one. <laughs> Go to this church, and they're going to hate every single thing you proclaim. This is Isaiah. He's given the message that he's going to go proclaim God's word, and the people are going to reject it. What's more, God seems to be alluding to Isaiah that when he goes and proclaims to God's people his word, his very proclamation is what's going to harden them. They're going to hear the word of God, and it itself is going to harden them because it's going to push against their pride. It's going to push against their idolatry. So that when they hear the word of God, they say, no, I don't want that. 
I want my way. So his proclamation actually hardens them, as does Jesus' proclamation of this parable. It has the effect of bringing joy to some, but hardening others. Essentially, God told Isaiah to go and tell the people that they are foolish, blind, dull of heart, and heavy of ears, incapable of turning in repentance in order to be spiritually healed by their God. As Jesus says, many of those in his, as he says to many of those in his audience on the beach in verse 15, that this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear, their eyes they have closed. Jesus relates that this people have blind eyes, they have closed ears, they are incapable, in fact, of turning to be healed. And notice the primary issue he relates. He says, this people's heart has grown dull. Matthew just keeps on pulling at this theme. He just keeps on trying to point it out to us that the issue is not so much the external action, though that's bad. The issue is what's going in inside that's causing it. The issue is the heart. The belief, that the lack of profession of faith in Christ that was going on in the land of Israel and is so ubiquitous in the land of the United States of America today. The issue is not all of the external stuff. The issue is the heart stuff. It is the heart problem. As he says back in chapter 12, verse 34, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Why are they evil? Because they speak from their hearts. And their hearts are evil. Well, finally, Jesus relates that this message was also for the blessed. He says in verse 16, Blessed are your eyes, he says to the disciples, for they see and your ears, for they hear. His disciples have been given the ability by God to encounter his truth and with open ears and open eyes to be able to receive it. Their hearts have been changed, they have been transformed, they have been made new, and they can now grasp it. They can grasp the truth. And understand, my friends, what these guys heard and what these guys saw and what we hear and what we see by extension through them, through their written word, is something that all of the saints, all of the Old Testament prophets who have gone on before, that they long to themselves encounter. What we have is something that all of those forefathers longed to have. He says in verse 17, many prophets and righteous people longed for it. My friends, sometimes I think we fail to realize the scope of just what we have in Christ. The scope of how blessed we are to be on this side of the cross, to not put faith in God that merely looks towards a Savior to come, but a faith in God that looks back to the Savior who has come and has confidence in the Savior who will come again. We lose sight of the fact of what we have. We have the Spirit resident inside of us who enables us to walk in holiness and godliness, the Spirit who enables us to speak God's word with power and who comforts us when we are weak and needing help. Oh, we have much, much that was longed for for so long, and oh, how we take it for granted. So Jesus, he spoke this parable in order to reveal the blindness of his audience and to relate the blessing of his disciples. Now let's take a moment to connect this to us and 
the commission that Jesus has given to us to tell others about him and, and his work that they might be saved. Let us go forth and proclaim while letting God do the revealing. Let us go forth praying and proclaiming while letting God do the revealing. Now this does not... This does not negate our responsibility to make every prayerful effort to explain the gospel to people clearly. Or that we should give up when they don't immediately accept the gospel when we share it. But it does mean, my friends, this does mean that we can present Jesus and then we can rest in God. For salvation belongs to the Lord. We can share the gospel with true love, with prayerful vigor expecting God to work, hoping that God will work, pleading with God to work, and then at the end of the day, we can go to sleep at night because we know that salvation all belongs to the Lord, and my job is to be faithful. His job is to be the Savior. So we see texts like this that makes me think, whoa, thank you, Lord, and double thank you that when I share the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's on you to go inside that chest and revive that heart back to life. So, with that being said, my continual challenge upon our church, my continual challenge upon each one of you is to find one or two or dare I say three people in your life and make a true commitment to them before God to do a few things. Number one, pray, plead with God daily for their salvation. Number two, model in God's strength the unconditional love of Jesus to them, which means you choose to love them even when it hurts. And three, share. Don't just model. Don't just hope that it's going to magically work out that they're going to hear the gospel apart from you. Share the full gospel of Jesus Christ with them. The four components that we relate again and again in this church. Share with them that there is a holy God. Share with them that, that they are part of a sinful group of mankind. Share with them that they have a loving Savior who has been provided in Jesus, who died on the cross and rose again to pay for their sins. And then share with them repentant faith. That they must turn from their sins and embrace Jesus in faith. Pray for them. Model Jesus for them with unconditional love and then share the gospel with them as you relate the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, the salvation of Jesus, and the repentant faith that is required for a person to be saved. And then with all this, that's the get your hands in action and go do. But here's the one that tells us to look up. Here's the application that tells us to look up and just bask. Let all true followers of Jesus Christ go forth praising and rejoicing for God has blessed us with open eyes and ears. I don't know why verse 16 is my verse. 
I don't know why that word blessed includes me personally. But I do know that I'm one of the blessed because I know Jesus. And therefore, I know that my eyes and my ears have been opened. I am one of the happy people of God because he's opened up my eyes to see Jesus. And my response is not to question him. My response is to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for making me your child for whom I can say, Abba, Father, I love you, my dear Lord. Let all true followers of Jesus go forth praising and rejoicing because our God, our Father, has blessed us as he's opened our eyes and opened our ears. Third transition today. Let us consider the explanation of the parable. Notice verse 18. Again, he says, hear. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. So Jesus provides three examples of people who hear the word, which I think is the good news about him and his, his kingdom. But it does not it does not result in fruitfulness in their lives. First of all, we have the one who does not understand. The one who does not understand. Now this person's heart, and that word understand can be a little bit misleading. It's not mere ignorance, it's volitional. There's, there's will involved here. They're not seeking God's knowledge. This person's heart is impervious to understanding like hard ground that resists all seed. And he or she won't even consider the veracity of Christ's message. He or she remains utterly resistant, stubbornly refusing to even entertain the notion that Jesus speaks God's word and performs God's salvation. And the result is that the evil one, which I think likely refers to Satan and his system of worldly deception, as he's called evil one in other places, the evil one, he comes like a bird and he snatches away what has been sown. In other words, they hear the gospel of Jesus, they resist the gospel of Jesus, and the spiritual seed which was meant to bear spiritual fruit results in no fruit. This reminds me of the stubborn family member, the, the prideful friend, the resistant neighbor who wants nothing to do with your Jesus talk. And second, Jesus speaks of the one who falls away when tribulation or persecution comes. This person, this person initially receives the good news, it seems, about Jesus and receives it gladly. But his or her willingness to endure suffering for the truth is small. 
ultimately relating the clear reality of his or her heart. That the truth of the gospel has never really penetrated very deep, certainly not enough to save and to transform. Their heart remains rocky. Oh, they may like the idea of Jesus. They might even profess him for a time as Savior but, and celebrate him with others. But when the going actually gets tough, they split, showing that their true allegiance is to themselves and to their own earthly comforts. They regard this world as a better treasure than Jesus himself. And third, we have the one who has the word of truth choked out through worldly cares and the deceitfulness of riches. This person also appears for a while to profess acceptance of Christ's word, it seems. But when life either gets too hard or too serious, or when wealth and status or the things of this earth become too important, these people have no time for the truth. They have no time for the gospel. Its value to him or to her is, is choked out. And it does not lead to anything lasting. There's no, there's no fruitfulness in them from the Spirit of God. They too show their true allegiance that it's not to Christ, but to their own cares and their own desires. Now these last two examples, sadly, describe many in the American church today. For since it is all so easy to call oneself a Christian in our day, they do so only for the benefits that they perceive. But should the going get tough, should persecution rear its painful head against the gospel and its people, or should the claims of Christ interfere with their money or their comforts, they choose to move on, seeking other wells from which to drink. Wells which mislead them and lead them to destruction. And what these last two examples reveal is that they were never really with Jesus to begin with. Because as John, one of the disciples sitting there listening on the beach that day, as John would later on write in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. John was addressing a church that was experiencing the loss of people who forsook Christ. And his answer to them is, they went out because they were never really in. And then, of course, Jesus says in John's gospel, chapter 15, verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown in the fire and burned. If there's no fruitfulness... There's only judgment. But Jesus does provide here an example of those who hear the word and their hearing results in fruit. They hear it, they understand it, and the word of Christ yields spiritual fruit in them because at a variety of levels of growth, they produce Good things for God's honor. Some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. I think it's interesting that D.A. Carson goes to great lengths. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson goes to some lengths in his commentary to state that when you really get into it, this idea of a hundredfold, 60-fold, and some 30 is a pretty paltry amount of fruit. It's actually not a whole lot of harvest here. 
In the eyes of God, this, this really isn't that much. But it is something. The point is not that they produce differing levels of fruit, though they do. The point is that they do produce fruit. They produce what Paul will later call the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the blessed. These are the true hearers, the truly redeemed, the true children of God, the true Christians. Not perfect people. People who really have a fairly meager amount of fruit at the end of the day, but people who did produce fruit because they're God's people. And God's people produce fruit. These are the true producers. And understand, my friends, that all of this fruit, all of this harvest that is accomplished is from God himself. It is every bit of it the Lord's doing, as Hosea wrote in Hosea 14, verse 8. Oh, Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Like an evergreen cypress. If there's going to be fruit, it's going to come from me, God says. John 15, 5, Jesus, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever, anyone who abides in him, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Or Philippians chapter 1, verse 11, where Paul says to this church, you are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, we're going to cast all the crowns down upon Jesus' feet because we're going to realize that the only reason they were ever up on our heads is because he put them there. That the only real, the only real, uh, the, only, the only one truly ultimately responsible at the end of the day for our fruitfulness is Christ himself who worked through us. Is God who bore spirit in us through his spirit. <laughs> the God who brought fruit through us, through his spirit. So my question to you today at the end of this first parable in this sermon is, do you have ears to hear? And I don't ask that saying, hey, are you in or are you out? Meaning, are, uh, are you one who gets it or not? What I'm saying is, if, if, you, if you're hearing this message, if you're hearing this message today, and you're saying, oh, I've gotten Christianity all wrong. I'm in trouble here. I I've missed it. I have thought that I could just pray some prayer as a kid, and then as long as I go to church on Sundays, I I'm good. I never understood that Jesus really wants to get to my heart and just change me. But I'm getting it now. What he's saying is clicking. I'm tracking with this. If that's you, if you hear, my friend, come to the waters. Come and drink. Salvation is good, and God offers it to you freely. Receive it. Turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus, the one who died on the cross and shed his blood in payment for your sins and rose again three days later in triumph so that you could have eternal life in him. Oh, do you hear? Do you have ears to hear? My friend, stop and consider this question which Jesus puts before you. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, are you bearing fruit? 
There's a delicate balance you have to walk as a pastor, right? I don't want to put guilt on a Christian and make them feel like they're not a Christian, but the Bible does talk about a godly sorrow. That there's a time when we should consider our lives and mourn over the fact that there are some areas that we're not surrendering over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And as a result, we're not seeing a whole lot of fruit. Christian, can I challenge you to evaluate yourself today and take up the mission of bearing fruitfulness for Jesus by clinging to him, abiding in him, that he might bear fruit in you. So as we close this message, if there are those who say, I want to go and talk about how I can have Christ and bear fruit like that word says, I'll be right here. Or if you want prayer and counsel as a believer to know how to cut out some things that are sucking out all of the air in your life, preventing you from having what you need to bear fruit in your life, for letting the word guide you, I want to pray with you and I want to help you. I'll be right So let us pray and ask God to inspect our hearts even as we lay them open with vulnerability towards him. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity today to again open up your word. I pray, Lord, that everyone here would have ears to hear what you are saying. That, Father, you would do the work that only you can do, which is to open up minds and hearts to be able to receive the holy food of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would promote spiritual fruitfulness in the lives of your people today, and that you would let them know, Lord, that you desire this from them, but that you will also help them, Lord. Oh, Lord, give them that encouragement. We thank you for the chance we have to again read the words of Jesus. May you continue to bless this word as we work through it, and I pray this in his name.